Hey guys, it's Matilda Pearl. We've lost too many lives on our roads this year through risks that weren't worth taking. So I've teamed up with the TAC and other artists to use live music as a way of highlighting that life without your mates is as quiet as music without a band. So take extra care out there and let's keep the band together. I want to see the sun go down from St Kilda Esplanade. I'd give you all of Sydney Harbour, all that land and all that water for that one sweet promenade. Yep, great lyrics from the great Paul Kelly, who, like many others, just loves the Melbourne beachside suburb of St Kilda. And I do too. G'day, I'm Alex Leahy, and for this episode of Always Live, we're crossing the Yarra River and going Southside to get inside some truly iconic live music venues. The Prince, the Palais, and the Espy. We'll be joined along the way by Mark Seymour, Vicar Bull, Chris Cheney, Paul Dempsey, Alice Skye, and this guy. Dave Faulkner, lead singer and songwriter of the Hoodoo Gurus. And we'll catch up with some of the people behind the scenes, the crew who make the music happen. Stage left, vocal, stage. So, where do we start this story? How about we head down Fitzroy Street to the old George Hotel? It's a beautiful building, very classy. But in the late 70s and early 80s, this was the greatest punk venue in Australia. Many legendary bands got their start here, when it was known as the Seaview Ballroom and then the Crystal Ballroom. We're talking names like Nick Cave and the Birthday Party, Hunters and Collectors, and The Models. There were some great band names from the ballroom era. Dead Can Dance, The Moodists, Ku Klux Frankenstein, The Corpse Grinders, The Olympic Sideburns, The Wreckery, The Ears, and Crime in the City Solution. Whatever band you were in or going to see, the ballroom was a magical place. Though Mark Seymour's not so sure. (laughs) Magical. I just always remembered, and look, I can only speak from Mark Seymour's character, you know, but I always felt looking at those guys, you know, the, the Sean Kellys and the Nick Caves and whoever they else they were, and, you know, these guys in these punk bands, I remember looking at them going, oh, I can do that. <laughs> and there was just this sense of tension and not a fear is probably in there. Like I really wanted to sing in public and that was just the place everyone was going to. It was my age and lived in Melbourne and in a city. That was just the choice you made. And it was exciting, but I'm not sure it was magical. (laughs) You know, I mean, there was a lot of weird stuff going on. I mean, there was some really, there was a lot of dickheads there as well. But everybody went, you know, and I just got to know all these people that, I mean, I don't know them anymore. They've all disappeared into the mist, you know, but I just had a really strong sense of, as as an art, wanting to be a singer and an artist, and that was my school. You know, I got schooled there. It was here, at the Crystal Ballroom on May 15, 1981, that Hunters and Collectors played their very first gig. The thing that I think was most profound when all those guys walked off stage was we all looked at each other and went, actually, all that work that we put in to actually make this really good, that actually was meaningful, you know. And until we'd done that, it was just guys in a room doing stuff. 
drinking piss and smoking cigarettes and, you know, leaving the butts upended on tops of amplifiers and letting me out, all of that stuff, you know, and, and just living in this kind of sort of semi-squalid existence of just sort of being completely absorbed in sounds and argument about parts and just, you know, the stuff that people, do, rock and roll musicians do in rooms, you know. I mean, man, it's really strange. There's something mysterious in that process that you really can't define and it's very, it's deeply psychological and it's, it lies somewhere really deep in human nature, you know, that people want to share a collective experience. Only music can provide that. Before the Hunters, Mark Seymour was a regular at the ballroom, mainly because he was a big fan of Nick Cave. I was right into The Boys Next Door, big time. I, when I started realising that I was a real absolute nuff-nuff. I had no idea about fashion or contemporary, what was considered. He, that guy had this nose for, you know, whole couture. You know, he was just as cool as fuck, excuse the language, and everybody knew it. He was like this little kind of David Bowie marionette. You know, he's doing the whole thing with his hands and I'm going, this is just so completely strange. Why is this guy doing this? But it was just incredibly fascinating. It was just he just had this charisma that was just erupting out of every pore. And I, I just sort of go down the front, I'm just wearing my Levi's, you know, and it, I just look like a dick. And I didn't talk to anyone, but I went over and over and over again. It was like the school. I didn't get it, but it worked, you know. There was a narrative there that worked. And then Mark's band, the Jetsons, finally got to do their own gig at the ballroom. We were meant to get $300 cash and... That was when I absolutely lost it, and that was early on in my career. The first time was at the front desk. I went out to get the cash. We loaded our gears down the step, and I, he gave me 150 and I completely lost it. I just, I don't know what I said to him. I think I was pretty abusive. <laughs> and Ori said, yeah, like rock star, we are rock stars. And I said, well, you know, and I thought, well, that's that what I am? You know, because I was quibbling about not getting paid what you said you'd pay me. I got half the money. You know, it was this whole dynamic. You're a rock star. And they're like, I thought, yeah, maybe that's what I am. <laughs> you know, because I wanted my $300 cash. For musicians like Mark Seymour, venues like the ballroom were where they learned to become rock stars. And, you know, that's the thing. If you want to make any general comment about those sort of venues... That's what they do. They teach musicians how to do it. And it's it, you can't learn that stuff at a university. You know, you can't learn it songwriting 101 or, you know, because the thing about that side of things, like the craft of pulling music together, it's, it's all about communication and being right at the coalface and going, does this work? And you walk off stage and you go, no, that didn't work. They just what, what's he going on about, you know? And that can only occur in that real-life situation, in my view. Back in those heady days, there was a strange liquor licensing law. If venues were serving alcohol, then they also had to provide you with a meal. At the ballroom, this meant at the right of the stage, there'd be mountains of white bread, some chopped lettuce, and thin slices of what was believed to be some sort of meat. Hmm. It was the ballroom's version of the beggar's banquet. A little further down St Kilda's Fitzroy Street, you'll find 
another grand old hotel, the Prince of Wales. By the end of the 80s, start of the 90s, the Prince had taken over from the ballroom as St Kilda's home of punk and rock. But this venue's history goes back a little further than that. Well, the Prince has been around, Jesus, since the 20s, I think, 20s or 30s. And um, it was like when we reopened the Powers Kitchen and a few of the eateries and stuff in 2015, 16, we went back into history and like it was actually um, a base for General MacArthur in the World War II. (laughs) Um, and then it went on to be like 50s and 60s swing bands and everything else. And one of the first, you know, LGBT um, friendly venues was in Pokies and, the, you know, one of the first real venues that had the pride flag up. So, um, which is great. And, you know, Pokies and Drag Queen in the public bar and that was 60s and 70s and that wasn't happening. It was in around Melbourne and then you had like artists, you know, who used to be based here, you know, great Australian artists and living in St Kilda. And then the 70s, you know, with the birthday party and all the great, you know, the oils, the late 70s, 80s into, you know, the, the golden age, you know, the oils, crowded house, chisel, you know, beast suburban, uh, hunters and collectors. And they all lived around here. Akadaka, you know, lived up the road because St Kilda is such a great music suburb. That's James Power who handles all the bookings at the Prince Band Room. These days, the Prince is home to everything, from dance music to hip-hop, world music and rock. Yeah, we do everything. So and I think that's another big characteristic of Melbourne, is that you can be a Public Enemy fan and a Paul Kelly fan and a you know, Beastie Boys fan and a Dope Lemon fan all in one. You don't have to be locked in the one genre. And I think that's the beauty of The Prince is that we do everything, yeah. Paul Dempsey's been on The Prince stage many times, usually fronting something for Kate, but sometimes under a different name. We used to do these shows years ago when we'd be warming up for a a big day out tour or some big, you know, national festival run and we would always squeeze in a secret show. Usually at the Prince of Wales, we did it a few times, and we'd either be, you know, Jerry and the Man-Made Sharks was one of them. Another time it was George Kaplan and the editors. We've done all these secret shows at the corner and the Prince, and, you know, you wouldn't do pre-sale tickets because you were playing under a different name, but the word would get out, and then, you know, you'd be there, and there'd be, you know, a line of people lined up around the block and that was always like just so exciting to, to do those secret events like that and see those lines kind of down Swan Street or, or down Fitzroy Street wrapping around the corner. Before he started booking bands, James Power grew up in Echuca. He came to Melbourne to play rock and roll and was the drummer in a couple of cool bands, Daybreak Giants and The Fallouts. Now, I'm sure you've heard a few drummer jokes over the years. The best one I've heard is... What's the last thing a drummer says in a band? Hey, how about we try one of my songs? Ah, cheap shot, but relatable. Drummers can sometimes cop a bad rap in the music biz, but where would the Melbourne scene be without our drummers? Many of them are now major players behind the scenes. Damo Coston, who mans the tubs in Motor Race, is a promoter at Live Nation. Scotty McKenzie, who is the drummer in a band called Mo Black, is one of the main agents at Premier Artists. 
Matty O'Gorman, the skinsman in British India, is a great promoter of Australian music on Triple M. She had's Tom Larkin is a top manager and record producer. And as we've heard, James Power now books bands at The Prince. Before he started at The Prince, James saw stacks of gigs at the venue. He even got to play here. We just thought we'd, you know, we'd made it. <laughs> you know, we were on at 8 o'clock at The Prince. We, we must have made it. So, um, and we told all our friends we had made it. Particularly that 95 to 99 period in Melbourne, like you could just see everyone and anything and it was awesome. As in I remember coming to the Prince here to see Wrestle Rock with the Cosmic Psychos and everything and then seeing Fred Negro nude on stage with a chicken and a can of baked beans and I'll leave the rest up to you and your listeners. But, yeah, we were like, wow, (laughs) you can do that on stage, okay. And that's the thing about the St Kilda scene. It's got some fantastic venues and it's also been home to some incredible characters, including Fred Negro, who's fronted some fabulous bands over the years. Or at least the band names have been fabulous. I Spit on Your Gravy, The Band Who Shot Liberty Valance, The Brady Bunch Lawnmower Massacre, The Fuck Fucks, Shonky Tonk and The Twits. They even made a film about Fred and the St Kilda scene, which was shown at the Melbourne International Film Festival in 2022. It was called Pub, the movie. I think we're ready for this, we're ready for this. When it comes to punk rock at The Prince, it doesn't come much more punk than this experience Damo Costin had at the end of the 90s. At The Prince of Wales front bar after Rancid had played The Back Room, which were possibly one of the coolest punk rock bands, you know, ever of all time, we had the 2am slot with this my first band called Paradigm and... Rancid fans had gone over. You remember the old Prince of Wales? It was a dodgy place to hang out. It's nothing like it is today. But it was the coolest, probably the roughest place. And I'd only had a small drum kit and I knew there were lots and lots of dodgy dudes around there. So I had to stand over my drum kit the whole night to make sure it didn't get stolen. So I'm waiting for our slot, the 2 a.m. Rancid plays. I watched that. It was amazing. It was incredible. And everyone's absolutely, I mean, it had concrete floors, but they had. VB cans, I've never seen so many cans just crushed and sweaty. And, you know, people just lost their shoes, lost their pants, lost their shirts, you know, and it smelt. It had that smell about it. It was was really bad, very, very bad. Anyway, so we ended up playing the 2 a.m. slot at the Prince of Wales and all of those people had sort of rushed out to the front bar and we played these kind of manic punk kind of a little bit punky, a little bit edgy, a bit of a UK vibe about them, and we played it. And Marcus, who was the singer at the time, he'd just been smoking some weed out the back or something, and he gets out the front and he was like, started drooling from his mouth. He was doing a really good job of it. But halfway through his set, he's just like, he went totally green, <laughs> and he had a spew on stage, and the crowd lost their minds to this. So we're playing as loud as we possibly can. No one really knows these songs, and Marcus is having a spew. We kept playing through it, and bless him, he got back up, turned around, and finished the set. 
What a legend. After Rancid, Prince of Wales, probably near on 3am, trying to dodge the pools of spew, and that was my sort of rock and roll Prince of Wales story. Thank you, Uncle Damo. Yes, many thanks for that story, Uncle Damo. Music journalist Andrew Mast is a legend of the street press world, and Masty also had his own punk experience at The Prince. Actually, uh, first went there when it was a drag venue uh, way back in the early 80s, so I was already at home there when they started pumping the bands through. Uh, managed to see Tex Perkins, back then Tex Deadly, in a cover band doing only new romantic songs uh, where he was drumming and they managed to cover things like Spandau Ballets to cut a long story short, except they hadn't rehearsed, didn't know the lyrics, so most songs ended up... So a great venue, unexpected things, saw Tism's first gig there as recommended by uh, Nick Cave. He was the, he uh, wrote about or spoke about Tism being the band to see and I remember the place was ram-packed because Nick Cave had recommended this band. Everyone's just waiting to see what's going to happen. No one knew what Tism did at that point and you just heard this noise from the back of the room and these guys dressed in black with balaclavas just ran through the room chanting, we are serious, this is serious, something like that. And so that was that was the Prince. It was the home of the unexpected, of, of great gigs. From Rancid to Coldplay, Tism to Billie Eilish, the Princes hosted them all and music journalist Cameron Adams was there the night Billie played. So she had a band, which is her brother and the drummer, and they did the Prince Band Room to a bunch of screaming kids losing their absolute mind and, you know, small, like it, was, it wasn't huge. And I remember that someone fainted in the front row pretty early on the show and she stopped the show and got down and was like, is this person all right? It's called security. And even, like, she would, I think she was, like, 16, 17 then, probably 16. That's good. Like, she is her audience. They were the same age. And she's watching this happen in the front row, stop the show. And this was a live radio gig too, mind you. I don't think it went out live, but it was designed to be anyway. I was already impressed with her and I was, like, equally impressed with her. Like, waited till I think things kind of stopped until she found out that that kid was okay. Very impressive. And obviously now she's huge. The Prince is such an iconic venue. Early in their career, the Hoodoo Gurus were desperate to play there. I mean, we wrote a song deliberately mentioning, you know, a Melbourne landmark, a song called Arthur. And we had the, you know, Arthur played the bass, he had an angel's face. And a black gelato van down St Kilda Way met with Arthur's taxi by the Prince of Wales, I think, you know. So we named the Prince of Wales Hotel and we ended up playing the Prince of Wales Hotel and, you know, that became, of course, a big song when we ever played there. <laughs> but uh, but um, we actually deliberately wrote the song with mentioning the Prince of Wales and uh, you know, St Kilda because we wanted to play in Melbourne and play at the Prince of Wales. So that was a way of making some sort of wish fulfilment. See, rock and roll dreams do come true. I might have to write a song about the MCG. Dave's also very proud of the fact that the Gurus hold the house record at another legendary St Kilda venue. At the time, in 1997, they were the band's final shows after they announced they were breaking up. Our final shows were at the Palace in St Kilda and I think we actually got the uh, record for attendance because they, of course, weren't so strictly observing the uh, fire regulations and they just jammed everyone in there 
And it, it was more jammed for that for that show, those two shows, than we'd ever been jammed before or ever since. And, in fact, the place closed down probably a couple of years later and no one exceeded that uh, attendance. So we actually have the all-time record for crowd attendance at the Palace. That's a pretty cool record to have because some massive acts have played at the Palace, including Jeff Buckley, In Excess, Prince, Barnsey, The Angels, The Pixies, Basement Jacks, Midnight Oil, Iggy Pop, and Nirvana, who played there at the start of 92. Nevermind had just hit number one in America, yet somehow Nirvana were playing at a venue in St Kilda. If there's one gig you wish you could have been at, turns out journalist and broadcaster Paul Cashmere was there. Well, at least for part of the show. I was one of the ones that got to stand in the palace and watch Nirvana uh, with my son Tim, who was only about eight years old at the time, but loves smells like teen spirit. And uh, it wasn't a very pleasant experience because, you know, like the eight-year-old kid taking him to see uh, Nirvana's um, under-18 show in the afternoon, he sort of stood there with his hand over his ears and I think we had to leave after about three songs. But I was in there for the first three songs. I did get to see Kurt Cobain and it was an amazing show. A trio of Aussie teenagers loved Nirvana so much, they were often called Nirvana in pyjamas. And those teenagers, aka Silverchair, also got to play at the palace. Their manager, John Watson, will never forget the moment Daniel Johns decided to do a stage dive. The audience parted like the Red Sea and he face-planted on the concrete, knocked himself out and had to go to hospital. That was not a great one. Treated by the Melbourne um, media, I might add, that that reporting on that was that Daniel Johns had, quote, I remember this exact quote, been dragged from the stage and beaten up by fans who are angry at his lacklustre performance. John has fonder memories of another Silverchair gig across the road at Luna Park. I think that the probably the strangest thing I've seen at shows was the mania in the early days of Silverchair. They did a gig in particular for the push at Luna Park, like an under-18s gig in Luna Park at Kilda, and... It was like Beatlemania, you know. This was not long after the Tomorrow EP came out, long before Frog Stomp. And it was sort of one of the first tastes that everybody got of like, oh, holy shit, what is this? You know, it was like nothing any of us had ever experienced. Luna Park's still there. But sadly, the palace closed in 2007 and burnt down not long after. But we still have our memories. There was that night Tism launched their great truckin' songs of the Renaissance album and no one knew that they had an honorary member on stage. Behind the balaclava was none other than Brian Nancurvis, who we later got to know on Rockwiz. The palace was packed and I remember going on, so excited. And, of course, we're all masked, so no one knows who you are. And we had these flimsy masks just with eye holes and little mouth holes, pink ones. And in the third song, the dance routine involved six of us in a sort of conga line with hands on shoulders. And in the excitement and the the mayhem of, of battle, the guy whose hands were on my shoulder, his hand uh, raised up and slipped on my head and completely turned the mask around and so they went left and I went right and I fell off the stage because my eye holes were at the back of my head. I was caught, I think, by some uh, TISM fans. Damo Costin also got to meet one of his heroes at the Palace. 
playing with garbage at the old palace that's burnt down and sitting beside Butch Fig, who made my favourite records of all time, and just hanging out and shaking his hand and um, watching him take off smelly socks after an hour and a half of playing hits. If you're planning a big night out, leave the car at home. If you can, use public transport, catch a taxi, rideshare, or organise a designated driver. Let's all get home safely and keep the band together. The Palace was right next door to the Palais Theatre, which is still one of Melbourne's most prominent venues. At nearly 3,000 people, it's the largest fully seated theatre in Australia. And it is beautiful. Grandeur is definitely the word that I like to use to refer to this venue, both internally and externally. And I think the grandeur of the exterior of the building also really plays a part in it having such a stronghold in the in people's memory and history of the music scene in Victoria that you can't forget what Palais Theatre looks like. <laughs> it's 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 a it's a big and dominating but beautiful in its particularly since the renovations in 2017 onwards, that, you know, it's, I feel like it's even more so now. That's Isabel Berlin, who manages the bookings at the Palais. There's so much history here. The Rolling Stones played the Palais when they first came to Melbourne, and the venue recently hosted Midnight Oil's final Melbourne shows. Isabel and venue manager Lloyd Jones have seen some great gigs over the years and some strange things. It was a mascot for a band, fell off the stage, fell fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think there was a video of it too. And I think one there was a performance going on on the stage and one of the pivotal things was this styrofoam pumpkin and then it accidentally got punched off the stage and hit someone in the head and they had to stop the show because someone got hit in the head with this pumpkin. Prior to being the bookings manager here I used to work on the promoter side and used to book Palais Theatre and put artists into the venue and one of the shows I was working on was the Boys to Men tour that was a very interesting and fun and hilarious tour to work on. I remember they had their tour party and they had to tour with their barber so that they could get fresh hairdos whenever they needed to. And I think it was like 96 roses on their rider that they needed 96 roses because they then threw them out into the audience. But I don't know, and we never worked out why it was a very specific number like that. Just round it up to 100. The Palais, which opened in 1927, has also seen some unforgettable shows over the years by Skyhooks, Savage Garden, Sia, John Farnham, Kylie, Bob Dylan, Duran Duran, Patti Smith, Eddie Vedder and Bruce Springsteen. When the boss played here in 97, he said it reminded him of being at home, right on the Jersey Shore in Asbury Park. Bruce's backstage rider was pretty simple, some green tea and soy milk, but others can be a bit more demanding and, um, cheesy. A lot of the times there is that one item that's like, yeah, that's a test to see, to make sure we're reading it. There's also, and I'm not going to name names, the one of my funniest writers I remember looking through is their hospitality writer was just 24 cans of Red Bull and 24 slices of cheese. 
And there was literally one time that they refused to go on stage because they didn't have their 24 slices of cheese. I didn't stick around to watch, (laughs) but it was like he was refusing to go on stage and, and I sent someone to go to the nearest supermarket and buy a bigger 24 slice of cheese, whatever it is, and they did. We got it back. He got his cheese. He ate one slice and went on stage. So, yeah, it's those, like, weird stories of what happens behind the scenes. (laughs) There were no diva demands when Vicar and Linda headlined their own show at the Palais recently. The sisters were just so excited to be there. For Vicar Bull, who's been playing gigs in Melbourne since the 80s, the Palais is her favourite venue. Because it's so big and the stage is so big and it's people, everyone gets a great view and it's quite intimidating when you walk out on stage but it's such a beautiful old theatre. It's so much a part of St Kilda, you know. It's it's so pretty it's sitting there on, you know, the water is the backdrop, the palm trees, Luna Park. I think it's one of the best venues in Melbourne. That would be my favourite venue. Go to any gig at the Palais. And you'll always find people out the front having their photo taken in front of the sign showing who's playing that night. It's a magic moment for any punter. Another magic moment happened not long ago when Always Live announced that Dua Lipa, one of the biggest stars in the world, would be playing at the Palais, the only theatre show on her entire global tour. Huge! That was a coup for Always Live, working in partnership with Live Nation which is where motor race drummer Damo Costin works as a promoter. We're really, really proud to be part of Jewel Lipa playing the Palais, the Mighty Palais Theatre. Really an intimate show with some great local supports. It's nice to be part of this initiative overall for us as a company to be involved because it gives us uh, a sense of purpose and the fact that we're sort of back again doing what we do best and promoting and chaperoning young new talent but also doing really unique things with some of the world's biggest acts in some of Victoria's best venues. The Palais is a venue where so many special things have happened. In the 70s, Mike Nesmith from The Monkees recorded a live album here, which he called, funnily enough, Live at the Palais. If you've never been lucky enough to see a show at the Palais and you want to see what it looks like, just head to YouTube and check out the music video for In Excess's Listen Like Thieves, which they filmed here in 1985. Though the venue looks a little different in the clip. It's a post-apocalyptic version of the Palais, kind of In Excess meets Mad Max, with Michael Hutchins playing the role of Mel Gibson. The Palais also has a very special place in Matty O'Gorman's heart. It was here that the radio DJ and British India drummer saw his very first gig. It was uh, with Dad. It was the Bachelor Girl and Goo Goo Dolls at the Palais. And uh, <laughs> I remember, yeah, I remember um, it was crazy because it's just like your senses are in just overdrive and you're in the Palais and, yeah, it was, it was incredible. It was something that uh, was almost uh, addictive. You wanted to do it again. Maybe not those bands, though. We love the Palais so much. It was inducted into the Music Victoria Hall of Fame in 2015. And what's not to love about a beautiful old theatre where you can feel the history everywhere you look? No wonder Isabel Berlin loves her job. I'm a sucker for theatres. I I love beautiful old venues in that capacity and it it lends itself to that same kind of vibe. 
It also used to be a, a picture house, which for those kind of older theatres, similar to Palais Theatre, it used to be a picture house. It's It, it has a, a different, um, I guess, layout that I find kind of lends it better to viewing of a, of a show. You, you tend to have a, a lot better kind of options and range to be able to see the stage because they were set up to watch movies where there was such a focus on being able to see the stage. Yeah, I don't know, there's something about that and the grandeur of the stages and, you know, I mean, I do love a a small kind of pub club that the ceiling is really low and that kind of thing as well, but there is something about that kind of grandeur of a theatre stage that I really love. No visit to the live music temples of St Kilda would be complete without a nod to the ESPY. As you walk up those steps, you can't help but wonder, is there a more beautiful hotel than this one? Overlooking the bay, the Esplanade Hotel was built way back in 1878, and live music has been on the menu for most of that time. Paul Kelly says it's the best pub to watch the sunset over the ocean in all of Australia. We love the ESPY, even when it hasn't always been perfect. And the award for Melbourne's shittiest backstage band room goes to... It was the ESPY. The ESPY. Yeah, they had the worst band room, front bar. We used to play there every Sunday and we had that band room was just the pits. It was disgusting. It was cramped. It was, it was like it was mouldy, smelly. It was like you could just feel like all sorts of shenanigans that had gone on in the back of that room. You know, it was like, okay, <laughs> this is really rank. <laughs> so, yeah. Yep. As Vicar Bull can attest, the backstage scene in rock and roll ain't always pretty, particularly at the ESPY before it was renovated. But the front bar at the old ESPY, well, it always had a vibe. I would say, yeah, it was pretty loose. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And a lot of great bands played there. So you could go there every night of the week. Monday night was the best night to go there. Diana Kiss used to play there. That was, you know, everyone's favourite band. We'd go there every Monday night. If you never saw Diana Kiss, you miss something truly special. This was the band fronted by the late, great Ross Hannaford, the guitarist from Daddy Cool. They played at the ESPY every Monday night for 11 years. One night, when Bob Dylan was playing down the road at the Palais, his band dropped into the ESPY, where they saw Diana Kiss doing a few Dylan songs. The story goes that one of Dylan's band members said, It's lucky Bob didn't come over here to watch. Otherwise, he would have sacked us on the spot and hired this band. The Living End's Chris Cheney has also had many memorable nights at the ESPY. I remember always going to the ESPY front bar and seeing that was always such a great, especially if it was raining outside, you know, you'd be standing in the warmth of the ESPY front bar, beer, looking out over the bay, and there'd be some great band playing. We used to go and see the Strikes a bit, who were the Fireballs again, but with a different singer, uh, Intoxica. Every time they would play, we'd go and see them. And, yeah, they were some of the best gigs, really, because it was just so new and fresh for me at that point to be driving, although someone else was probably driving me at that point, to be going to those gigs and, and being out in amongst the scene, you know, all the like-minded weirdos just like myself, you know. The front bar at the ESPY has been the scene of stacks of mind-blowing gigs, some of them unexpected. On a Sunday Arvo in 2002, 
the one and only John Farnham hit the ESPY stage to launch his latest album. When the venue heard Farnsey was keen to play there, they put an ad in the local street press saying, John, if you want to do the ESPY, you got to play Sadie and you got to send us a demo. He got the gig. Men at Work have also played the ESPY front bar, as did another legendary 80s band. Journalist Cameron Adams was there the day that Ice House played. They're a fixture now, but at that point, they sort of just got back together. Um, there was a period where they didn't tour, they didn't do anything. And this was around the time of them starting up again. Uh, now they're like headline festivals and it's, it's a given. But back then, it was like, oh my God, Ice House are back together. Like they were one of the few that weren't touring from the 80s, I guess, but they were massive in the 80s. And they basically did the front bar of the SP, so not, not even the Gershon Room, the front bar. That was a very cool show. Those journos get to see all the great gigs, hey? And there have been plenty of great gigs at the ESPY, from legends to artists just embarking on their musical journey. The ESPYs hosted them all. Alice Skye was buzzing when she finally got to play here. Gosh, yeah, I played a show at the ESPY when it, I'd heard so much about it before, but I hadn't been there until its reopening and I, I played in the the basement sort of area as a part of St Kilda Festival one year and it was just such a scene of like Melbourne rock dogs in the room and I just loved <laughs> like just it just felt so St Kilda to me and that was cool to see and the gig was so rowdy and fun which is like an Alice Guy crowd isn't always rowdy but it's fun when it is and my keyboard fell off my stand like halfway through our set it was yeah it was one of those nights that was just a bit off but in a really good way. British India were also wrapped when they got a gig at the ESPY even though it was a little chaotic as Matty O'Gorman recalls. I mean you think about the ESPY back in the day that was a powerhouse you had like four different band rooms all happening every night you know bands coming from everywhere you know where the hell do you park you know how do we get our gear in you know it was madness at times you'd be like how does this place function properly but it just worked you know and you used to get you know people just would park themselves at the bar you know to be gaffer tape on the ground people smoking it just used to have this kind of rough feel about it that was really kind of people loved it people were really kind of drawn to it and, you know, it really kind of represented what St Kilda was at that time. And it's still, it's still great now. Like it's obviously changed hands and it's been renovated, but the Gershon Room is exactly how it is. So, you know, kids coming up today will still get, the, still get that feeling of what it's like watching a band there. After a multi-million dollar reno, the ESPY reopened in November 2018. It was a big gig for the new band booker, Sean Adams. Booking a venue like an iconic venue like the ESPY is certainly... Um, Imposter syndrome definitely creeps into your head when you start kind of like you start getting the opportunity to go, oh, this venue is yours, and you go, holy shit, you know, like this, what am I gonna do, you know? And so it was really an amazing opportunity. So I kind of started maybe a couple of months before it was all supposed to open, and so it's a bit of pressure to kind of get it moving. But luckily, uh, we got to open the venue with the Teskey Brothers, which was. Um, Pretty surreal because that, that was just as their moment where they were exploding. And once again, just timing, you know, they were available on a day. We were reopening an iconic 
music venue in an iconic room with a Gershwin room and, and just those things aligned. Ah, yes, the Gershwin room, the home of Rockwiz. Oh, I love the Espy. Yes, yes, the Esplanade Hotel. I walked past it yesterday. I, I could have just cut up, stayed on the beach side, but I thought, no, I'm going to take the overpass, walk past the Espy just for old time's sake. We've done Rockwiz there. We started in 2004 and we taped our last show in 2016. So a good long time there. That's Brian Ancurvis, who created Rockwiz with Kenny Connor and Peter Bainhog. Well, the decision to do Rockwiz at the ESPY was really, it was just such an obvious thing. And right from day one, we knew that we were, you know, we were bottling magic, really. Cav Templey from Eskimo Joe had his own magical Rockwiz moment in the Gershwin room at the ESPY. Probably my fondest memories of the SP is playing Rockwiz, and uh, they would always broadcast from the SP. And um, one of my f- most favourite TV memories that I've ever had is, you know, generally when you get asked to do live television, which doesn't seem like as big a deal these days in the land of streaming, but, you know, playing a live television show back in the day was a a sphincter-clenching experience, let me tell you. You did not want to mess it up. You know, I did a couple of uh, Rockwiz performances and uh, they invited me back where they were doing this tribute to, you know, Americana, and they invited me to do the song Hurricane, which has got 11 verses, so it's a it's like memorizing a play, you know, and it's live television. So I got on and, you know, did my due diligence. I, I rehearsed it, rem- memorized all the lyrics. And, and there's a, if you look at the footage, there's a moment where, cause it goes the, it's amazing that they broadcast the whole thing. Cause the performance goes for like, you know, 10 minutes or something like that. And there's a moment where I get to the three and a half minute mark where, you know, if you do the maths, like most songs are about three and a half minutes. So I'd only ever done a live television performance for about three and a half minutes at a time. And then you're like, whoo, we got through that. But there's a moment where you can see it gets to about the three and a half minute mark where I have this look on my face where I'm just like, oh my God. I haven't messed it up. This is awesome. And then I put my guitar to the side and you, and the performance just ramps up massively because I'm like, I'm doing this, you know. Uh, and so, yeah, I look back at that and I just think, you know, that was such, I feel so honoured that they asked me to come and do it in the first place. But also, um, you know, the most amount of comments that I ever get from people that I meet on the street, it was like, oh, yeah, I was there at the Gershon Room and, and saw you do that performance of Hurricane. And and so that, that lives on as one of my favourite moments ever. And it's, you know, it's there on YouTube. YouTube, the Gershon Room in all its glory. Rockwiz executive producer Peter Bainhog still loves St Kilda, though he admits it has changed a little bit over the years. A lot of younger people have moved northside, and much of the old SB crew have migrated to another great St Kilda venue, the Memo Music Hall. I think that the Memo Music Hall has actually picked up the mantle in some ways of not so much what used to happen at the ESPY, but but it's really playing to that market of uh, an older demographic and doing incredibly well. Younger people have moved away. They've gone north. Older people have kind of stayed south. The older people are kind of hanging around and spending more time at a place like uh, the Memo where you can sit down, see a good show, fantastic sound, and it's a really, it's a lovely venue. We're going to wrap up our visit to the ESPY with a story from Oscar Dawson. 
the guitarist from Holy Holy was doing a gig in the Gershwin room with his old band. And it didn't quite go according to plan. So the Gershwin room, the stage is, I reckon it is an, a metre, metre and a half high. And my band at the time, Dukes of Windsor, we were playing a gig at the Gershwin, which was a fun time. I always liked the Gershwin. It wasn't like the front bar where people just walked off the street into the SV. It was like you came through the back door, the side room, and you kind of sold tickets there and people came in. It kind of felt a bit more like a show. And, um, yeah, I think maybe I just got a bit overexcited and kind of was climbing up on the like the foldback monitor, you know, the angled foldback monitor, which adds another foot of height to the fall and just came at it with too much speed. And I'm a guitarist, so I'm holding a guitar. And sometimes when you're falling, you can like go leg first, but um, just couldn't. I was in the middle of a song and I just kept going. But I landed on this poor person and like, you know, you know, on the headstock of the guitar, you wind your strings around it, but there are prongy bits of strings <laughs> that poke out from the strings. They were like pronging out. I was sort of conflicted between protecting myself, protecting the guitar and protecting the girl. <laughs> the headstock like actually sort of scraped <laughs> along her shoulder. Yeah, she was like legitimately scratched. And um, I don't know, we probably didn't have public liability insurance even. And then the band, because like, I just disappeared over the front of the stage. And, this had, and I'd like landed and so I sort of landed on my side and wrecked my knee and all this stuff. And like, you know, falling off the stage is bad enough, right? Because you want to make a good show, but you also don't want to look like a douche. But yeah, actually like, you know, wounding a punter at the same time is also extra bad. And that brings to a close another wild ride in the story of Victoria's passionate live music scene. For the last word, let's return to the Prince and James Power, who'll never forget the night the venue hosted a benefit for the late, great Spencer P. Jones. Tim Rogers, Adelita, the Johnnies and the Drones played. And then another Aussie legend took to the Prince stage. All this raucous, awesome Aussie rock. And then, you know, the great man Paul Kelly gets up and he's just acoustic guitar and he's singing from St Kilda to King's Cross in St Kilda, looking out to where he was just talking about, you know, give you all the Sydney Harbour for the Esplanade. Well, we're right here. And you could hear a pin drop and there was old blokes crying and, yeah, it was like, wow, okay. And it's just real sense of community, like we're sharing this moment together and how good is it? It's just, it's almost, you know, not to get bloody hillsong on it, but it's spiritual. <laughs> people come together. That's like, I know more people that have had a religious experience at a gig than at a church. It's, you know, these venues are Melbourne's churches, you know, the High Father Corner, the Prince, the Espy, the Croxton, you know, the Forum, the Athenaeum, they're Melbourne's churches. So no disrespect to any religious people out there. I'll be in trouble with some of my family, but that's all right. <laughs> yep, live music is a religious experience. And hallelujah to all those awesome venues wrapped up in the Melbourne seaside suburb of St Kilda. Next time on Always Live, we'll be worshipping on the other side of town. We're heading north side to visit the venue where Courtney Barnett used to be a bartender. 
And we'll find out which old hat factory is now one of the most beautiful band rooms in town. I have a very rich connection and strong connection to the building for that reason. All that and a whole lot more coming up on episode six of Always Live. This episode was written and researched by Jeff Jenkins, Luke Wallace and Mikey Carl. Audio production by Ben Oakley. Produced by Dave Carter on behalf of Media Heads. If you dug this podcast, feel free to share it, write a review and subscribe to the series on your favourite podcast app. Sharing is caring. And if you want info on some awesome live gigs coming soon to Victorian stages, follow Always Live on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter or visit the website alwayslive.com.au. I'm Alex Leahy. Catch you at the next gig. Hey guys, it's Matilda Pearl. I couldn't do what I do without my band by my side, so don't do life without your mates by yours. Take care on the roads this summer, look out for each other, and most importantly, let's keep the band together.